0: Our text this morning comes from the gospel account of John, John chapter 11. If you have a Bible, turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible provided for you underneath your seat in the pew. Uh, And if you turn in that Bible, it's page 898. So this is John, and we'll start at the very end of John chapter 11. The scene we have before us is Passover. Passover is an annual festival, and it is a big deal. Thousands of Jews flood to Jerusalem where the annual festival of Passover is celebrated. The crowds are large, and the Jews celebrate this every year because they celebrate the Exodus. They celebrate God's passing over the Israelites while God delivers his wrath to the Egyptians. And at this point, Jesus is very well known. And the climate, as we'll see in our passage, around Jesus and surrounding him is very volatile. There are many people believing in his name, loving him, and there are many people wanting him to be arrested and to be killed. And so the big question in our passage is that the Jews have is, will Jesus make an appearance into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover? Will Jesus Come to Jerusalem. And if he does, what will be people's responses? What will be the response of the Jews, the Pharisees and the Romans? Let's pray and then we'll read our passage. God, help us to believe that Jesus is the anointed one. God, help us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the prophesied king. God, help us to believe in his name that we may have life that you provide through faith in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. So this is John chapter 11, starting in verse 55. And I think by reading a lengthy passage here, hopefully we'll get the sense of the narrative of what's going on in this story. 11.55 Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. "...whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said... The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was, with, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. To quote from a book that I would recommend reading this week called The Final Days of Jesus by Andreas Kostenberger and some others, he says this. We have read the eyewitness account of what the most important person who ever lived, said, and did during the most important week of his life, Sunday through Sunday. From what we now call Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. This morning is Palm Sunday. It's the first day of the last week of the most important person who ever lived his life. And we have the eyewitness account. We have four eyewitness accounts in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this morning we've read one of those accounts. The account of a man who is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, a man who is part of the inner circle along with Peter and James. We read his account, eyewitness account, of the first day of the last week of the most important person who ever lived. And we know John, the disciple, we know the purpose for his writing of this eyewitness account because he says so later on in the book. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the king. And so that believing in his name, you may have life. That's why John is writing his account. And the question we have this morning is, is by believing in Jesus, we may have life. Well, what kind of life is that? What kind of life will a Christian have? In our passage, Jesus is rightly seen and celebrated as a king, the king of Israel. And the question remaining for us is, will we serve him? To channel the best pastor wheat I can... The Jesus we need is a king. The Jesus we need is a king. So for many of us, we only want Jesus the Savior. We only want Jesus the one who gets us to heaven. But we don't necessarily want Jesus the king. We want forgiveness purchased by Jesus, the Savior, but we don't want the price of serving Jesus the king. We want the amazing benefits of being a Christian, but not the costly lifestyle that goes with it. We want the king's glory, but not the king's cross. The Jesus we need is a king. He is a savior, but he is also a king. And in this passage, we see Jesus enter Jerusalem as the long awaited king of Israel. And so the question is, will you serve him? Will I serve him? Well, why should we serve Jesus? There's many kings vying for our lives. There's many things out in the world that says, give your life to this and you will be happy. Or give your life to this cause because that's where life is found. So why give our lives to Jesus the king? Why take up your cross and follow him? Why forsake all and dedicate your entire life to his service? This morning from our passage, we're going to look at three reasons why we ought to serve Jesus, the king. First, serve Jesus, for he is the king who conquers the enemy. Second, serve Jesus, for he is the king who dies for the many. And Third. Serve Jesus, for he is the king who gives life to the dead. So first, serve Jesus, for he is the king who conquers the enemy. And we're going to focus mostly on the, the passage starting in verse 12 of chapter 12, the triumphal entry. Look there with me again, verse, chapter 12, verse 12. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So Jesus is entering into Jerusalem and the people rightfully see Jesus and celebrate Jesus to be the king of Israel. They wave palm branches, a sign of joy, a sign of triumph, a sign of victory, because they saw Jesus as the king who is now going to come conquer the enemy. And they were right. They just got the identity of the enemy wrong. They rightly shouted, Hosanna, which means save us. God, save us, I pray. Because he is the one who can save. He is the one who can save Israel. Jesus rides in a town on a young donkey or a colt. Why? When most kings ride in a town and get celebrated like this, they come into town on a war horse to display strength and dominance. Why is Jesus coming into town on a young donkey? It's so that he fulfills prophecy, so that he can never be mistaken that he is the one who in Zechariah 9, 9, he's the long awaited Messiah. And this is what we read in our Old Testament reading. Zechariah 9, 9 says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus comes in, and there's no mistaking it. He's announcing that he is the Messiah, that he's the one in the Old Testament that we've been waiting for, that he's the one in the Old Testament that possesses salvation and righteousness, and he's coming into town to deliver Israel. But what the people didn't get was that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world? The people thought the kingdom is here, the kingdom is now, the kingdom is of is of this world, and the Romans will be wiped off and we'll be reestablished on the throne, and we'll have power again, and we will rule. But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And so yes, he was coming in a town, and yes, he is the king, and yes, he is the king who conquers the enemy but he's conquering the enemy of the kingdom of darkness here. He's conquering Satan. He's conquering the enemy of all enemies. He wasn't coming to conquer Israel's worldly enemy, the Romans. He wasn't coming to reestablish the nation of Israel to retake the power. Jesus, the long-awaited king, was coming to conquer the greatest enemy, Satan. If you look at verse 31, I know we didn't read this verse, but a little bit later in our chapter, in verse 31, it's very clear who he's coming after. Chapter 12, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the prince of darkness. He's talking about the ruler of this world. He's talking about Satan. He's coming after him. So unknown to many of the Jews, the kingdom of Rome was not their biggest problem. But it was the kingdom of darkness. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is what is entering into Jerusalem here. And he's got one target on his mind to conquer the kingdom of Satan. For this is a cosmic battle with cosmic implications. And Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Messiah who was prophesied back in the Old Testament, even even back further. If we go all the way back to Genesis, Jesus is the long-awaited prophesied Messiah who will crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, this is when Adam and Eve fell, and this is God talking to the serpent, saying to him this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what is happening in Jerusalem. Jesus is coming into town to crush the head of the serpent. And so if you are a Christ follower this morning, then Satan is no longer on the throne. Of your life. He's no longer in charge. He's no longer calling the shots of what you must do and what you can't do. Because Jesus came to Jerusalem on a donkey to cast out the ruler of this world. And so let me ask you do you live as if the enemy has been overthrown? Or do you live as if the enemy is still on the throne? You know, we read about Judas. In this passage, and we shouldn't be surprised of Judas's selfishness here. We shouldn't be surprised that Judas was acting like a thief and talking and disgruntled about what Mary was doing. Because why? Because Satan was still on the throne in his life. Satan was still calling the shots. Yes, he was associated with Jesus, but he was not bowing the knee to Jesus. He was not serving Jesus as the king. Judas served the kingdom of darkness, and so we shouldn't be surprised here of Judas's selfishness. And I know there are areas of our lives as Christians, I know there are for me and I know there are for you, there are areas of our lives where it very much feels like Satan is still in control. We feel like, man, I just can't seem to read my Bible. I just can't seem to be bold enough to witness to my neighbors. I just can't seem to forgive my friend. I just can't seem to get my priorities right in life. I just can't seem to shake this sinful habit. And so it feels so much to Christians as if Satan is still on the throne, but this is one of the many cases where feelings has to take a backseat to truth. And the truth is, Jesus has come, and Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent, that Satan is no longer on the throne of Christians. Yes, sin is still very much present in the Christian, and that's what makes these things so hard. But sin no longer holds all of the power. Satan no longer holds all of the power. Christ the King does. And so serve Jesus, for he is the King who conquers the enemy. Secondly, serve Jesus for he is the king who dies for the many. This is found in verse 23 and 24. And Jesus answered them, "The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it does, it bears much fruit." So up until this point in the Gospel of John, there's been a few instances where Jesus has already warned them. Disciples, hey, look, I'm going to die. I'm going to be put to death. I'm warning you. This is happening. Get on board. And a couple times, Jesus says, the hour has not yet come. Meaning, I am going to die. I am going to be put to death, but not yet. Disciples, not yet. The hour has not yet arrived. The hour has not yet arrived. It's not going to happen yet. Well, now the hour has arrived, Jesus says. The hour is here, and that hour is for Jesus to be put to death. The hour is here, and so, and I, I guess I just want to point out here, and obviously we'll spend much more time talking about the death of the King, Good Friday. So come back Friday 630 to hear about the death of the king. But I do want to point out here that as Jesus approaches Jerusalem on the donkey, his death was very much on the forefront of his mind. He knew what he was getting himself into. And yet he willingly and voluntarily approaches Jerusalem, the volatile climate to which his end will be death. He knows this very much. And yet... He is the king who is willing. He is the king who loves. He is the king who dies for the many. And he knows only through his death will the many have life. And that's what he's talking about with this parable. He's talking about this grain of wheat falling down and dying. And yet, because of the death of the kernel, much fruit can come of it. Only way we have life, only way we have salvation is through his death. And he knows it, and that's why he comes to Jerusalem. So the death of Jesus is relevant in every sermon. Not just Good Friday, not just this morning. It's it's relevant in every sermon because it's his death that is our motivation for why we serve the king. It's his death, it's his love, it's his giving himself up for the many is the motivation that we are to use and need to serve him. Because it's one thing for a king who demands that you serve him, that you give your life to him. And it's a whole nother thing when that king says, I will give my life for you. Will you serve me? So what does serving Jesus look like? We're called to serve King Jesus. What does that look like? Well, we know it doesn't look like Judas, but it does look like Mary here. We read about Mary. That's a great example and a picture of what service to the king looks like. Mary gave herself to Jesus. Mary emptied herself. Mary emptied the bottle And poured it on to Christ because this is Mary emptying herself. She is fully devoted to the king. Why? Because he is precious. He is savior. He is the king who died for the many. That's why Mary anoints Jesus. That's why Mary gives of herself to Jesus because she loved him and wanted to serve him and honor him. So loving him looks a whole lot like serving him. And serving him looks a whole lot like self-sacrifice. So in what ways are you and I trading our lives for his glory? In what ways are we losing so that the kingdom of God is gaining? Serve Jesus... For he is the king who dies for the many. And lastly, serve Jesus, for he is the king who gives life to the dead. Verses 17 through 19 of chapter 12. Let's read it now. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole wor- or the world has gone after him. So this is about the miracle that Jesus performed back in John chapter 11 of raising Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus had died. Lazarus was in the grave four days. The stench was there of a rotting corpse. And yet Jesus comes in and he gives life to Lazarus. He gives life to the dead. And it's this miracle that has everybody talking. And it's this miracle that has everybody up in arms. Either they are believing in Jesus or they want want him gone. This miracle is the miracle that dominates the passage we've read this morning. It's why many Jews who came to Jerusalem a week ahead of time to purify themselves and get ready for Passover. It's why they left Jerusalem and went to Bethany two miles to the west. And they said, we want to see this Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead. That's why the Jews are leaving Jerusalem. They want to see Jesus who did this sign. And it's why the passage says that there's such a big crowd when Jesus enters Jerusalem. Why are they out there? They want to see Jesus who brought life to Lazarus. It's this miracle that has the Pharisees and the chief priests saying, we got to get rid of this guy. He's causing a stir. He's causing many of these Jews to go to him and believe in him. We need to squelch this. It's this miracle that causes the timetable of Jesus' death to quicken. The Pharisees didn't wanted no part of arresting Jesus during Passover. The, the Pharisees and the chief priests wanted no part and putting Jesus to death during the biggest festival of the year where thousands upon thousands of Jews were there. They wanted no part of that. They said, let's, you know, they thought, let's let this festival pass by. The crowds will die down. Then we'll take care of Jesus. Arrest him, find him, arrest him. No, but Jesus coming into Jerusalem like he did, causing such a scene, saying to everybody, he is the king. That made the Pharisees and the scribes, quicken their timetable. And of course, this is according to God's timetable because God wanted his son to die during Passover. And the Jews were probably thinking when Jesus came in as the king, the king who has power over life itself, the Jews were probably thinking, this is great. If this king has power over life itself, Lazarus in the grave, then the Romans will be gone in no time. That's what they're thinking. Because it's true. Jesus does give life to the dead. Jesus raises Lazarus. And Lazarus is a picture of what he does for us. It's not, you know, the, the Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 nine. 9 Christ is coming, and he's bringing salvation with him. And it's salvation from our greatest enemy, Satan himself. Lazarus poses the picture of what salvation is. We showed a video to the youth a couple days ago, and in that video, there was a pastor talking about how it's not as if people are a little sick and need a little medicine Or need a visit to the hospital to get better. No, it is, it is it, it is as if people are all like Lazarus, dead in the tomb, dead in the grave, and we need someone to raise us up and give us new life. Another picture that the the video talked about was, it's not as if we are drowning in the ocean. And God is the one who throws out the life preserver or the life raft and says, grab a hold and you will be saved. That's not the picture of salvation. The picture of salvation is we are dead at the bottom of the ocean with no hope. And yet God says, I'm coming for you. I will save you. I will give you new life. And that's the picture of Lazarus. And that's the picture of all of us who have put their faith in Christ. We were dead in our sins. But Jesus is the king who gives life to the dead. And so will you serve the king who gives life to the dead? Well, well, what would serving look like here? Well, I think serving would look a whole lot like verses 18 and 19. That those who witness Lazarus once dead and now alive, those witnesses, they are telling everyone they can about this amazing miracle. Because can you imagine the shock and awe that raising Lazarus four days in the grave to life and seeing Lazarus with their own eyes and just wanting to tell everybody? I think that's what serving Jesus looks like here. They couldn't wait to tell people about the King who gives life to the dead. Jesus is the King. Will you serve Him? What does serving look like? Look at verses 25 and 26. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world. Will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So, what does serving look like? Well, like we said, it looks like Mary lavishly pouring out herself to Christ the King. Sadly, often we are more like Judas. The one who enjoys the benefits of being associated with Jesus, but is not willing to give his life for the king, not willing to serve him. Are you willing to serve him? Am I? Is your mindset similar to Paul's who said to live is Christ and to die is gain? To quote An author, Jacqueline Crow, in her book, This Changes Everything, she says, Paul was the quintessential example of devaluing everything because of how much he treasured Christ. He suffered brutal shipwrecks and bloody beatings, lashings and imprisonments, starvation and snake bites, thirst, discomfort, loss, loneliness and pain, all because Jesus was worth it. Jesus was better than safety. Jesus was better than health. Jesus was better than food. Jesus was better than friends. Paul counted everything as loss because Jesus was so much better than everything. Do you and I live like Jesus is better than our phones? That Jesus is really better than sports? Would I I gladly give it all up without hesitation for him? Would I really? Thinking of Joshua here, this very same question. Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. Will you serve Jesus the king or will you serve another kingdom? There are many things and people demanding of us our lives. And we can become deceived that those things... Are better that those things will give us life one of the things i told the youth recently is is we have been deceived into thinking that the kingdom of amazon has more to offer than the kingdom of god i think that's true for youth and i think that's true for adults jesus is the king will you serve him why why would we give up our lives for his glory why would we take up our cross and follow him? Why would we sacrifice for him? Because he is the king who conquers the enemy. Because he is the king who dies for the many. Because he is the king who gives life to the dead. That's why. Let's pray. God, help us to believe that Jesus is the Christ Christ. That Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who brings with him salvation. And it's not salvation from our worldly problems. Jesus, you did not come to take away our worldly problems. Jesus, you came to take away our eternal problems. Jesus, you came to take Satan off his throne. Jesus, you came to die for me. Jesus, you came to give me life. What kind of life is that? A life of service to the king. And so, Lord, may this sermon not conclude in um, a, a chore of serving the king. Lord, may we walk away from this passage and say, wow, the king is glorious. The king is amazing. The king is my savior. I want to serve him. It would be my greatest delight and the greatest honor of my life to give myself to him, to his glory, to his kingdom. May it be our delight to serve the king. In Jesus' name, amen.